Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. So I'm currently on a holiday, so maybe the sound of this episode will be weird. I brought a decent microphone, but it might not be what you're used to. So bear with me for this one. Uh, the next one should be recorded back in my usual studio. So this week we have a new nightmarish Google plan for the web. They're basically trying to make websites implement DRM to block certain browsers or operating systems in the name of security. We have KDE Plasma 6 removing some features from 5.27, although it's nothing too crazy in my opinion. And we have a new windowing system in the works for GNOME which is sure to divide the community, but spoiler alert, I think it looks really, really cool. And we also have some driver improvements for Intel, we have some more news about the free and open source drivers for Nvidia, and we have a lot more. So let's dive in. As always, all the links that I use to make this show are in the show notes. And as always, if you want to support this show, all the links are also in the show notes. So let's get started. Okay, so let's begin with Google's new nightmarish plan to try and take more control over the web. Uh, they now have something called the Web Environment Integrity feature, and they're basically trying to add DRM to the entire web. Uh, with this thing, websites could require a token to check if the computer that the website runs on is trustworthy, and if the browser session is legit. And if they don't like what this token looks like, they could deny access to the computer and to the web browser entirely. So it's a project worked on by a Google engineer. It's not yet clear if it's a project Google wants to push or if it's just something someone from Google is working on without much oversight from the company itself. But what's certain is it would be a pretty freaking big nightmare for the entire web if a website could decide to not serve a specific operating system or a specific browser or a specific combo of both just because they don't think they're worth their time or they're worth uh, the, the, the time or the server space that they're gonna waste. The stated goal of this project is to increase security on the web. Of course, it's like, yeah, the website can decide to not have a super tweaked weird browser with a bunch of extensions that could maybe try and scrape data or, or just doesn't seem legit. I, I understand the stated goal, but the end result would be that websites could refuse to grant access to specific operating systems or to specific web browsers. For example, a computer running Adblock or Pi-hole or something like that could be entirely prevented from accessing the website or certain extensions in your browser could be prevented as well because they would break the integrity of the browsing session or the web browser. And also, it's not really stated whether this token could be used to identify people specifically and serve them specific targeted ads because with such a token, it might not be too difficult to check what exactly the person visiting your website is using and to basically fingerprint them with it. So with this thing, you would say goodbye to your rooted Android phones, to your custom Android ROMs. Some Linux distros that aren't supplied by a big company could also be blocked. Uh, some alternative web browsers could be blocked. It's a big nightmare. Like, Websites could just decide to authorize anything and just check for a normal web browser, but it could also be very strict and it could basically act like Android's safety net feature, which prevents a lot of applications from running 
in custom ROMs, which is a big problem. For example, if you use slash E or Graphene OS or stuff like that, your banking apps might never run because they are checking for safety net, which cannot really be enabled on these custom Android ROMs or can be with jumping through a lot of hoops that a lot of users just can't manage. So it would be the exact same thing, but for web browsers or operating systems and websites. And so any new web browser that just appears on the scene would probably not be trusted by most websites by default because they wouldn't know the token and they would say, you know what, it's a small browser, we don't know what they're doing, we don't want to trust them. Alternative installation methods for browsers could also not be trusted. Only the store versions uh, in the Windows Store, the Mac App Store, or maybe the Snap Store on Linux or FlatHub could be trusted because who knows, maybe the manual install or the package you got from your distro has been tampered with. You don't know, it's not an official version of the browser, so maybe you should block it. And that's really a problem. Maybe no Linux distro would even have a trustworthy token that websites would accept. You don't really know. And even if most of the web decided against implementing this system, if just Google starts using it on their own websites, they could decide that Chrome and Chrome-based browsers are the only ones that are trustworthy enough which would basically spell the doom of Firefox and any other alternative browser. We don't know yet, as I said, if this is a Google project or just a project worked on by some Google employees. But for such a big project, the former is the most likely of the two. Now, fortunately, uh, as Vivaldi points out, because Vivaldi put out a blog post talking about this and saying that it's basically a big nightmare, which it would be for Vivaldi because they maybe would not be able to generate a trustworthy token that websites would accept because they're a small browser compared to Chrome, for example. So as they point out in their blog post, the EU would probably flat out refuse the legality of this system because it would give companies way too much control over the whole web and the EU, the EU is generally not too keen on this kind of stuff happening. But yeah, the first time I heard about it and looked into this web environment integrity feature, I didn't really think too much about it because the description makes it look like generating a token will be very easy, that you could use the same token for different operating systems and browser combos, that it wouldn't be too hard to pass. But the thing is, it's the website's choice to trust that token or not. And some websites would just basically say, you know what, we'll only accept Windows, Mac OS, and the major browsers. Everything else, we can't really trust. We don't know what they're visiting us from, which extensions they use. We don't want that. So yeah, we're going to block these other tokens. And so parts of the web would instantly become inaccessible for alternative browsing methods or alternative operating systems, which sucks. This is not ethical. This is not how the web has worked or should work. So this thing should be fought and fought hard. I think most people will agree that if it comes to pass, it will be a disaster for the web as a whole. So on to more Linux related topics. Uh, there are changes coming to GNOME's window management, uh, optional changes from the looks of it. So for now, you know, window management on GNOME, it's relatively simple. You've got either your floating windows that you can resize as you want. You've got some tiling capabilities to maximize or tile two windows side by side. And you've got virtual desktops and you can make apps full screen in their own virtual desktops, much like on the Mac. And you've got touchpad gestures to try and navigate all of this. It's a relatively simple and straightforward way to manipulate windows. But in a future version of GNOME, they want to provide a new default system for window management, 
What they're saying is that for now, it's way too easy to end up with a ton of windows opened on just one virtual desktop that overlap each other, cut off the screen in the middle if you tile them in one half of the screen. Tiling capabilities are too limited with only two halves and it's just not really easy to handle your windows without using Alt-Tab or they just find it too confusing uh, with just a bunch of loading windows. So they're working on something new which they call a mosaic system. Uh, basically each application would declare its minimum size, its preferred size and its maximum size. The minimum being under that I'm not going to be legible or usable and the maximum being over that kind of size it's just wasted space and it makes no sense to resize me above that. And the preferred size would be this is where it's the most comfortable and where my information is shown correctly. And so these sizes would be automatically used by the system when you open an app. For example, you would open a file manager and that file manager would occupy, let's say, about a quarter of your available screen space as a floating window. When you use, when you open a second uh, file management window, your windows would automatically move out of the way so they don't overlap and they both use their preferred size. And if you use a third, if you open a third application, let's say a weather app, and there's no room to make it appear without it overlapping, then you could start resizing windows a little bit until you reach their minimum size. And once you reach the minimum size, you would open applications on a new virtual desktop. You would take the one that can be opened at the biggest size and maximize it and put it on a new virtual desktop and stuff like that. You could still manipulate windows manually. You can make them overlap. You can resize them. You can still tile them manually. But by default, each app would open in its ideal size without overlapping over other windows, which would just move out of the way. And so you would always have a legible environment. Think of it basically as an always-on expose mode that prioritizes the best display size for each application window. And once you cannot fit that anymore on a single virtual desktop, it moves windows automatically to other virtual desktops. It looks like a pretty great system, if I'm honest, because it means you never really have to fiddle with Windows anymore. You never really have to, to put this one above this one, to move this one out of the way. They just occupy the right space for them. And of course, if you don't like that, you can still manually tile them, you can still resize them and move them and probably disable the new windowing system entirely if you don't like it. Uh, but this new behavior would be the default and I think it's a good thing. Uh, it would even add more tiling capabilities as for example, if you decide to tile a window to the, to the left of the screen, only the right space uh, outside of this window would be used for other application windows to, to resize themselves and occupy the space. And you could drag a window on top of the tiled one to automatically create two tiling zones and more. So it seems pretty flexible and pretty nice. Some, sort of like the auto tiling in Pop! OS, but more like an auto floating, which automatically places windows in the right place with the right size and, and lets you adjust that if you prefer. I think it looks really cool. And in usual GNOME fashion, they want to do some user research uh, to confirm this would work for users, how to implement it, uh, which sizes to do, and also how to create this small API uh, so that applications would declare their preferred size, their small size and their big sizes, uh, so, so the, the system knows how to open them. This might be the biggest hurdle for this new system, honestly. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Libadvita and GNOME apps would all jump on board with this API. 
but I'm not sure uh, that KDE apps or, or desktop environment agnostic apps would bother doing that. It's not, it doesn't seem really hard to implement. That's what GNOME says. Uh, they say basically the complexity of implementation is so low that it's really likely that, that applications would adopt this API. But you never know. Uh, some apps take a very long time to actually work on that. So if it's not a free desktop spec, maybe applications won't bother. Who knows? That's the biggest hurdle. But they, they want to test it out. They want to also write a test extension that implements some of the Mosaic principles uh, so they can get some actual user testing, see if it works. Because, of course, in theory, if you have a big, like, I don't know, 27-inch desktop display or an ultra-wide 32-inch display, this is great because your windows will have a big canvas to display upon if you have a high-resolution display. But if you're on a 13-inch laptop, Basically, and you're a 1080p, you, you have a 1080p resolution, then maybe your windows, you, you'll only be able to display two or three side by side, and then automatically everything will be moved to another virtual desktop. It might introduce some friction. So it needs some testing to ensure that things are running smoothly and work well. So it is not planned for GNOME 45. Uh, it's more like 46 or later once they can do some user testing. Now, personally, I really like the concept I really enjoy floating windows. I don't quite like tiling uh, because it kind of makes no sense to slot your windows into awkward quarters of the screen or, or just slot them on the edges when you could just have them floating if they automatically have the right size. Uh, why would you need to conform them to weird sizes or, or columns which they were never meant to be displayed on? instead of just having your regular landscape-sized windows that most applications are designed to be, but just occupy the right amount of screen space. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm sure plenty of people would disable that because they would think it's too dumbed down or too simple or, or that it will result in imperfect layouts from time to time, which it obviously will, as everything automatic does. But I still think it's a good idea for a lot of people. It, it sort of looks like what Stage Manager on macOS or iPad could have been, but implemented in a useful way instead of being detrimental and requiring more user action. I think it looks good and I can't wait to have an extension to try it out uh, and see if it actually works in, uh, in, real, in real use cases. Now, on top of that, we also have some the usual GNOME Weekly app news. Uh, first, there's Loop, which is the new image viewer, which is a Libadvita app which supports uh, touchpad gestures or touchscreen gestures to zoom in, to switch to the next, uh, to the next uh, image that you're previewing. And so this is now part of GNOME Core. So it will be the default image viewer, probably for GNOME 45. Uh, it, it is still not in the daily GNOME OS images, apparently, because there are still a few bugs to be fixed. But it is now mature enough uh, to become the default for GNOME 45 in about a month. Uh, two months? Yeah, two months. Uh, in a, I think GNOME 45 releases uh, on September the 20th. So yeah, it, it will be the default there. Now, we also have updates to Blackbox, which is a new terminal app, more powerful than the default terminal or GNOME console. Uh, it now uses the Advaita and Advaita dark color schemes, which you can change now in the options uh, in the options menu, the little hamburger menu. You now get access to to different styles. Uh, you can force the terminal to be in light mode, dark mode, or use the system preferences. There's a new look for tabs, which are integrated into the header bar. You can change the working directory for every new tab you open. You can change the default. If you want every single new tab to open in your downloads folder, for example, you can do that. 
You can get notifications when a task completes in the background, and the header bar will also change colors when you're running a task with sudo or ssh, so it's easier to identify which tab does what. You can even rename your tabs if you want, so it's more legible uh, and you know which tab is running which command, which is really cool. There's also an update to Tagger, which is the audio metadata tagging app. It has a new beta, a lot of changes, notably in how, uh, how many file types it supports and how it supports them. It even adds support for corrupted audio files. There are more tags available, including some custom uh, user properties that you can create and define, which is cool. Uh, and there's also an update to the GNOME infrastructure. Uh, Canonical actually donated two new powerful computers to run continuous integration pipelines. Uh, it's also called automated testing before you merge your changes. Uh, the GNOME team took the opportunity to revamp these CI pipelines and this automation. They are now using Podman instead of Docker, and they are now cleaning up old Docker images, uh, so they have, they have less problems with uh, the pipelines running out of disk space, and so they can run more smoothly. So personally, this black box terminal app has become my new default terminal on all my GNOME desktops and laptops, it's super cool, pretty powerful, it does everything I need, and it looks really great doing so. So yeah, it has replaced the default GNOME console app, which was a bit too simple for my tastes. Now we're moving on to KDE. KDE developers are now talking about Plasma 6 and what it will bring, but they're also talking about uh, the stuff that will, they will drop in Plasma 6 compared to 5.27. Because yes, it's not just GNOME dropping options and features, sometimes KDE does it too. Uh, and the first one will be K-Hotkeys, which is a global shortcut system that was implemented a while back and basically lets you configure global shortcuts for your whole desktop, including also mouse gestures. Uh, apparently this thing was very buggy, it was not compatible with Wayland because obviously you can't have global shortcuts in Wayland without a portal, and so the previous implementation in K-Hotkeys didn't support that. It used non-standard ways of storing the data and the config files. It was apparently not very robust as well. It resulted in data loss often. And the code was also apparently abandoned for a while. So this feature will not make the cut to Plasma 6. It is replaced by a newer system called K-Global Axel, which supports Wayland, is more robust, uses a standard way of storing data. It's much better, but it loses mouse gestures. So if you were using K-Hotkeys to define like, uh, I don't know, maintain right click and left click and do a loop with your mouse to refresh your web browser page, you won't be able to do that in Plasma 6 anymore unless someone works on that feature specifically and re-implements it for the new system. Now widgets will also now not be able to have window-like properties. Uh, they won't appear in the taskbar anymore, you won't be able to minimize them just like applications. Uh, it's sort of normal, they explain this by saying widgets are meant to be small and easy to use. If you want to make an app, you make an app. If you want to make a widget, then it's not going to clutter your task manager. Apparently some widgets did that and had these properties. I think it's pretty normal that this doesn't happen. It, it separates applications from widgets. I think it's better. Uh, they're also removing some methods to force the font DPI and some icon sizes. It's not all the methods, you can still change the font DPI, you can still change icon sizes, but some places had duplicate uh, ways to do that. And so they're removing the duplicate ways of adjusting for a specific resolution. Basically, KDE had a lot of ways to adjust for your display resolution, whether it was using scaling or changing the font DPI or changing some icon sizes, but not all of them. 
And they are now removing support for some of these methods because scaling is the right way to do so. And having the ability to adjust everything individually plus scaling resulted in some really weird stuff and it was confusing for users. So some people will probably be a little bit mad because I personally was a big proponent of just don't touch the scaling because fractional scaling sucks. It doesn't work correctly on any system whatsoever. It will always be blurry because quarter pixels don't exist on your display. So 125% is just dumb because you don't have 25% of a pixel. It will always be blurry. It will always use more resources and battery life. So if you have a display that requires 125% scaling, just increase the font size a little bit and the icon size by a few points and you're good to go. You basically have the same result without blurriness and with well-defined elements. And yeah, that sucks because now you're basically going to have to use fractional scaling on KDE and it's not great. Now, some of the less used task switcher layouts uh, notably the grid layout, the informative layout, the small icons, the text only, and the thumbnails layout will all be removed from the list. If you don't know, in KDE you can change basically the Alt tab, look and feel. It can appear in a column on the left of the screen, it can appear in the middle just like you're used to on Windows, it can display thumbnails or a grid of apps or just the icons or just some text. They're removing some of them that were just less high quality, that didn't look good and were less used. Uh, they're getting rid of them. I think it's okay. They had like 10 or 12 choices in that list. You don't need 10 or 12 styles of, of alt-tab switchers. The Air Plasma style also will not make the cut. It's apparently abandoned. It's an old legacy style that could not support every single widget and had some display issues. So they're removing it. Uh, the per activity power settings will also be removed in Plasma 6. This kind of sucks uh, because it was nice to have like a high performance video editing activity where like you disable every power management feature to get the most out of your laptop. And then when you go back to normal web browsing, you automatically switch to another uh, power profile without doing it manually. I think it was cool to have that in the activities. It won't be there anymore in Plasma 6. Uh, the icon view in the system settings app will also be uh, dealt with and won't be there anymore. You will have to use the sidebar with its categories. Uh, plasma styles will no longer have the ability to override the general icon theme of your system. So all the icons in the widgets and the plasma panels will all come from your main user-defined icon theme. And they also removed the plugin for wallpapers, which grabbed the unsplash picture of the day. They didn't want to remove it, but apparently there was a licensing change that made them unable to keep supplying it, uh, which kind of sucks as well. So they're removing stuff that was unmaintained, confusing, or didn't work well in the first place. There are some things that kind of suck, uh, like the per-activity power profiles, or uh, mainly the, the, the settings to change the font DPI and stuff like that. I think those were useful, but it's not like terrible or anything. I'm sure some of these features were used by a bunch of people, which will be very annoyed, but I don't think it's the end of the world either. Now, there are a few changes coming to Fedora as well. Uh, Fedora and Linux in general already has a pretty good firmware updater system in place with the firmware updates daemon and the Linux vendor firmware service, LVFS. Uh, if you don't really know what that is, it's basically some kind of universal repo for all distros where manufacturers can publish their firmware updates. And then you've got a daemon called firmware update, F-W-U-P-D, which runs on your distribution 
and checks the firmware that your distro supplies and the firmware that vendors have published on LVFS. And if there's a new version, you can install it and automatically get firmware updates this way with no manual installation needed or anything like that. It's the manufacturer needs to support it and not all manufacturers do, but it is gaining speed pretty fast and it's probably the best way of installing firmware of any OS that runs on specific computers. Of course, if you have a Mac, you only run Mac OS on a Mac. So of course the, the person who makes, well, the company that makes the laptop or the desktop will provide you with firmware updates directly. But for example, on Windows, it's not that easy to get firmware updates. So it's nice to have that on Linux, but Unfortunately, for now, you know when an update is available and applying it isn't necessarily that easy and you need to check manually to see if there's a firmware update. So Fedora wants to fix that. For Fedora 39, they're proposing a new change uh, where GNOME Software or Discover would not only show you the available firmware updates that they are and let you install them, but it would also alert you about new firmware updates so you can apply them as fast as possible to stay as secure as possible. So to do that, they would use firmware update refresh, which is a system D service. It would not install anything automatically. You would still have the choice whether to install it or not, but at least you would be warned that, hey, there's a new firmware update. It fixes security stuff or, or, or critical security fixes. You should install it. I think it's a good choice. It's just a proposal again, it might not be accepted, but this one should be relatively uncontroversial uh, compared to, for example, the proposed telemetry uh, that they wanted to include in Fedora 39. And still on Fedora, it looks like one of their proposals was rejected, which was the move to DNF5. Uh, currently, Fedora uses DNF4, and the new version of DNF, which is DNF5, is supposed to bring better performance when you're installing packages to be easier to use, but apparently it is not quite ready yet, and so it won't be in Fedora 39, but at most it will land in Fedora 41. Uh, there's also apparently a mismatch with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, the new version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux version 10 will not use DNF5, and so Fedora will not make it the default either until Fedora 41 for the next uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux cycle. Apparently DNF5 is still missing a few commands, that DNF4 has access to, and it uses too much memory, among other things. So it's a good thing that it's not being forced onto users too early. That's quite what I like about Fedora. They're generally one of the first to implement a new system like Wayland, like Pipewire and stuff like that, but they generally only implement it once the experience is good and solid for most people. Uh, they don't just add the newest stuff because it's new, they add it when it's actually ready to replace the previous stuff for most people. And so they're not replacing uh, DNF4 for now because it's not ready. Now, still talking about Linux distributions, we got the release of Zorin OS 16.3. Just like Linux Mint, it's a small version update, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot new in there. Uh, basically, Zorin OS is still based on Ubuntu 20.04, which means that apps in its repos are insanely old and Generally, if you use it, you should use the Flatpak, Snap, and AppImage integrations that are there out of the box. It still uses GNOME 3.38, which means you're missing out on a lot of performance improvements, Wayland support, and the like, but it does get a new version of the kernel. Uh, it now uses the kernel from Ubuntu 22.04, which is much more recent and will support much newer hardware. 
So basically now you can install Zorin OS on a more recent computer when previously it was basically impossible, it would just not support uh, your new hardware. They also updated their version of KD Connect, which they call Zorin Connect. Uh, they also shipped the latest version of LibreOffice and other default apps. And of course, you have Flatpak, uh, AppImage, and Snap support to get your applications. You should not install apps from the Ubuntu repos on Zorin OS. Uh, the apps in 20.04 are way too old. You're missing out on so many new features and support. It's just not a good idea. Install them through FlatHub or Snaps or whatever else. Importantly as well, Zorin OS now got a new updater that lets you update to major versions of the OS. Previously, you had to completely reinstall Zorin every time there was a new major version. So for example, when Zorin OS 17 would be released, you would have had to reinstall your whole system. Now you won't have to. You've got this new updater, which will let you upgrade to major versions. I guess the problem was that since they stay on a very old LTS base for a long time, Jumping to LTS in the future is way too hard to handle, so they had to develop a specific tool, which now they have. I hope Elementor OS can uh, take notice of that and maybe reuse some of that code, because they have the same problem. Every time there's a new Elementor OS major version, basically every two years, you have to completely reinstall your whole system. So maybe they can use some of that code and just adapt it for Elementor OS, maybe write their own GUI if they want it to be integrated with their own style but it would really help them uh, keep their users instead of having to reinstall. So Zorin OS 16.3 is already available for download. Uh, you will get the update if you already run Zorin. It will be updated uh, until April 2025, at which point, hopefully, you will have Zorin OS 17 based on Ubuntu 24.04, maybe. I personally like what Zorin OS tries to accomplish. Uh, they're also working on some kind of... Uh, mass deployment system of, of fleet management system, which is called Zorin Grid, which would let you deploy multiple packages on multiple PCs at the same time. Something really cool for sysadmins. They, they, they have good ideas. It looks really good. It, it implements a lot of layouts and stuff like that. I think it's a great distro, but I do not like its approach of building a, a Franken-Buntu with parts of 20.04, parts of 22.04, old repos, old GNOME desktop, I don't think that the modifications that they apply on top of GNOME and the apps they ship warrant sticking to such an old base. They could just get with the flow, follow the Ubuntu updates and apply their customizations. Every LTS, at least. At least every LTS. So yeah, I don't really like their Franken-Buntu approach, but the rest of the distro is actually pretty solid if you have an older computer and you don't mind uh, depending on older apps from your repos. Now, talking about Ubuntu, it looks like Canonical is doing the same corporate shenanigans as we're getting slowly used to in the Linux world recently. Uh, I already said that they took control over the Linux Container Daemon project, which was initially developed by Canonical, but had been versed into the wider Linux Container team and project. So they took control of this project back again. They are hosting the code themselves on their own GitHub, but apparently they're not content with that. They also want to make sure that their team and Canonical as a company has complete control over who has access to commit and to maintain uh, the project. For example, Christian Browner, which is a former Canonical employee and was a Linux container daemon developer, he's been removed as a maintainer for the project after the code was transferred to Canonical's GitHub. So he was a Canonical employee, but he also kept working on that thing after he left Canonical 
But when Canonical repatriated the project, they just basically kicked him out. And Stefan Graber, which is the project leader for LXD, also has their rights removed after he left Canonical. So apparently Ubuntu and Canonical just want to have complete corporate control over that project and they won't accept anyone with maintainer rights outside of Canonical. That's not exactly how a free and open source project is supposed to work. Uh, you're basically kicking out people who are very involved in the community and have been working on this project for a while. It's not great. That's not how open source works. And yeah, it's not like we're not used to companies not giving a crap about the principles of free software and collaboration, but it's sort of sticking out now. We're, we're really noticing a shift these days. What is up with companies in the FOSS world? They do follow the letter of the licenses, but the spirit of open source is being trampled into the mud. It's weird, from Red Hat to Canonical. I'm sort of expecting OpenSUSE to also do something really terrible in, in the next month, just to round it up. It sucks. Now, what doesn't suck is uh, the first free and open source NVIDIA drivers are landing in Mesa progressively. Uh, last week, we had the driver for OpenGL. But now this week, it's the first bits of the Vulkan driver called NVK, which are also gearing up to be added into Mesa. Now, just like these open source OpenGL drivers, they depend on the Nuvo DRM driver. Uh, so it's not completely functional until the Nuvo kernel drivers get support for reclocking the GPU on the fly, basically changing the GPU clock speed to use less power or use the maximum amount of power and deliver good performance. For now, the Nuvo driver can't do that. It needs a new API to do it. But it's still a nice big step towards a full free and open source NVIDIA driver straight out of Mesa, which means that anyone would have access to it out of the box. You wouldn't have anything to install. Now, this NVK driver is built by people from Collabora, from Red Hat and the general open source community. And they submitted a merge request for Mesa 23.3. They say it's not on par with other Mesa drivers, like for example, the RADV driver for AMD GPUs, but they say that they have a solid set of features. Uh, Vulkan 1.2 support is just around the corner and most of what's needed to support DXVK, VKD3D and Zinc is already there. Zinc being uh, basically running OpenGL commands on top of Vulkan, so you don't have to have a native OpenGL implementation something that doesn't matter because there's already an OpenGL uh, open source implementation for NVIDIA being landed into Mesa as well. So of course, as I said, this new NVK driver depends on a Nouveau API to reclock the GPU. Uh, it has to be merged into the kernel. It isn't merged yet, but apparently it is almost ready and there's hope that it could land in the Linux kernel 6.6, .6, so in a few months. So basically, I would say that 2024, will probably be the year where people can go for NVIDIA on Linux without wondering if stuff will break, without having to install anything specific. They probably won't get as good performance as what the proprietary drivers give, but it will be pretty close, I think, or at least enough for most people that they wouldn't want to bother risking breaking their system by installing another driver. And still on the topic of Linux drivers, we have some good news. Uh, first, there's a proposed patch uh, for every kind of CPU on Linux, it's on the CPU frequency scheduler, uh, it would allow to trigger CPU boosting on a per-policy basis, which means that just one core, one logical core, or a set of multiple cores could turbo boost, while other cores would stay in a non-boosted state. 
This would deliver good performance for applications that rely on a specific core or are currently using a specific core without boosting the whole CPU, which means that you would use less energy and you would then save battery life, which might bring battery life on Linux laptops up to par with uh, stuff like uh, Windows, for example, because on a lot of laptops, Windows has better battery life than Linux. Maybe this would help uh, tip the balance in Linux's favor. And there are also some updates to Intel graphics drivers again. Uh, on the back of the previous updates from last week, we already had like around 10% improvements for Arc GPUs and a little bit smaller than that for Intel integrated GPUs. But we have yet another optimization uh, that's going to land in Mesa 23.3, which should grant about 10% more FPS in CSGO compared to the drivers that already include the 10% boost I talked about last week. Uh, it also includes much better scores in Vulkan benchmarks as well, so there should be a lot better performance for Arc GPU users in the coming month, which is really cool. Okay, and now pretty quickly we're going to finish this with the gaming news. Uh, first, uh, if you usually rely on Steam to game on Linux, you might not be super happy that you need a separate launcher to play Blizzard games like Diablo or Overwatch or whatever. And there are good news. Uh, Blizzard games are apparently going to come to Steam. I don't know if it's uh, because they're getting bought by Microsoft. This acquisition seems to be uh, moving forward. Uh, they still have to like solve a problem in the UK, but it looks like it's going to go through. So maybe it's Microsoft influencing them to put their games on more platforms. Maybe they had bad sales on just their own launcher and they want to extend the market. But what it means is that with Blizzard games on Steam, we Linux users, us Linux users, won't have to jump through hoops to install their games and play them easily with Proton. We won't need a third-party launcher uh, like, uh, like Lutris, for example. We won't need to install the Windows client and have only one version of Proton for every single game. Uh, we will be able to tailor stuff, basically. And, and it also means that running Blizzard games on the Steam Deck will be easier. It's a good thing. Uh, so that's nice. They're, they're starting with Overwatch 2, which is probably not the best game to start with because this thing is flopping hard and everybody's leaving it. And it's basically just the exact same thing as the first game without the promised uh, PvE campaign. So it's a disaster. Uh, but maybe they will bring Diablo 4 after that and maybe other games as well. That would be really, really nice. And still on the topic of launchers, uh, we have a new update for the Heroic Games Launcher, which is version 2.9. And the major update is that it now supports Amazon Games, which is not the Luna game streaming service. Apparently Amazon Games, I didn't know that, is something you get when you subscribe to Amazon Prime and it's giving you free games each month. And these games can be installed using the Amazon Games Launcher or, or, or client, uh, which is Windows only from what I gather. I don't even think they have a Mac client because probably their games don't support Mac OS. And so you had to run the Windows client on Linux to get access to these games. Well, now you can centralize them in the Heroic Games Launcher as well. So yeah, that's cool. Uh, I've been a, an Amazon Prime subscriber for a while and I never knew that I got access to monthly games for free, which is pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, I redeemed a bunch of them that I found interesting and that I had never played and I'll be playing them using Heroic, which is really cool. Now on top of that, the Heroic update also added a playtime tracking for GOG games and fixed a bunch of bugs for running games from the Epic Game Store or GOG as well. 
So cool update. Uh, I think there's already a hotfix out for it because there was a, a problem with the, with the update that broke something. So it's already fixed. Uh, you, you should get all these updates from FlatHub as always. All those third-party launchers like Heroic or Lutris, you should download them from FlatHub so you get all the updates. Uh, they move so fast, it doesn't uh, make sense to only depend on your distribution to package them, basically. So, okay, this will do for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to dive deeper into a topic, I left all the links in the description of the podcast. And as always, if you really enjoy the show, you can support it uh, on Patreon, LibraPay, whatever. All the links are also in the show notes. So thanks for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!